Michael Perlet. I'm Asher Collins, and together we bring you Exercise Equals Life Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Exercise Equals Life Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Michelle Bolin from Massachusetts. Um, yeah. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, all the way from Massachusetts. <laughs> Woo! On this nice uh, spring-like day. Yeah, it's incredible. I wonder if we're even going to get winter this year. We got like two light dustings, and that was pretty much it. It's just really bizarre. I am really good with that. I mean... Me too. I just am. It can piddle yeah. rain all it wants until spring kicks in, but <laughs> as long as I don't have to whip out the shovels, and I'm totally golden with that. Yeah, I feel so, bad for the winter skiing? sport people because they haven't been able to ski at all. And I'm just like, well, good thing, you know, I, I'm not really a winter sport person. So it works out kind of well. <laughs> no, definitely a rough season for them. If you ever saw me on skis, you would understand that that is not for me. <laughs> Kevorkian death sliders, you know, I was the guy, I do lodge really well. I'm mm-hmm. awesome in the lodge. <laughs> yeah, a nice go. break for lunch and then yeah, yeah, post lunch break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's that's the, the extent of my talent yeah. with that. Yeah, I didn't. So I where did you and Michael bump into each other? Oh, we we bumped into each other um, yes. at the NSCA coaches conference in North Carolina. Okay. And um, yeah, I was there. You're in Charlotte. Then, yep, in Charlotte, I was there presenting and then attending, and uh, we I think we bumped into each other too. You know, hitting the. Uh, Whole Foods hot bar line multiple times. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was once once we, we bumped into each other in front in front of Whole Foods and then on the actual hot bar line. Yeah. That sounds like <laughs> you, Michael. And me. Exactly. That was that was my go-to. If, if I'm not hungry, it's food during that time, which was nice. Not a normal day. We're we're foodies over here. Oh yeah, perfect. Well then, then your love for Whole Foods is explained. Yes, yes, it's a deep commitment that we have to. <laughs> Somehow you wind up there every evening. <laughs> I hear you. So, Michael, Michael told me that you. Michael told me that you really like to focus on um, unilateral work and with real attention to pelvic alignment whilst doing unilateral. Is that what you presented at the conference you guys met at? Yeah, so I presented three, well, technically it was really four simple rules for getting people to move better. And I basically suggested or kind of got into that performance to me, whether that's light activities, walking, throwing, um, planting and pushing in another direction or performance on a field is a triplanar um, activity with a unilateral emphasis. So whether I'm throwing a ball, I have to place more weight on one side and then transition it to another side, have to do that walking, have to do that running. So I think everything really comes Mm -hmm. down to that. So in a lot of my training methodology i really focus on making sure those skills are developed and then you know mm-hmm. relative strength and all that are are kind of placed in, in with importance in those two things that makes perfect sense it also kind of i'm thinking as a clinician being an ot it could stave off 
a lot of, you know, mid thoracic and lumbar and sacral pain down the road from either anterior, posterior pelvic tilts, or my, the, the one that actually I dread is, is like a lateral tilt. Mm-hmm. I think that's almost worse in terms yeah, of nerve exactly. impingement. So I focus a lot on my exercise prescription on like proximal position. So like rib cage position, hip position. And as you stated, like the, the hips can be tilted a certain direction, oriented a certain mm-hmm. direction. And so can the ribs. And that's, you know, people can lead to, you know, a lot of low back issues and especially the way that they're moving external loads in the weight room, you know, that can greatly impact it. So it's, I kind of wanted people to look, think a little bit more about how they're positioning people, um, especially with like okay. their, their exercises. Mm-hmm. When, when designing these exercises, where are you looking? Are you looking from the feet upwards you know, or from the shoulders downwards in terms of core placement and then more. So what does the core mean to you then and your training? That's a great question. I would say probably the core is really the area between the thoracic and pelvic diaphragm. So that, you know, contains a lot of organs that affect movement and kind of allows us to be able to create this kind of like piston atmosphere with these um, internal forces. And as long as those diaphragms are in like good positions, um, our our rib cage, our bony structures and our pelvis are typically in in good condition. So when I look at someone, um, I'm kind of assessing their movement in that area, but also teaching things like rotation and, um, making sure that the ribs can move well and the pelvis can move well. Um, as you guys stated, you know, is this person have a anterior tilt? Well, maybe we can kind of get their hips underneath them a little bit more during a squat and then they'll be able to kind of descend down a little bit better without, you know, and I think, I think the main point is that if we teach these things with exercise, it's more sustainable because kind of what you alluded to is, you know, if it's not broken down right now, maybe can, we can just decrease the probability of a future breakdown in terms of, you know, if you have an anterior pelvic tilt, maybe your back kind of gets achy, gets maybe nagging here and there, but maybe we can kind of prevent that from happening, you know, down the line in your life. Yeah. Especially, we don't want people avoiding physical activity. We want people doing more of it. Um, but if they're hitting these barriers and having low back pain when they're squatting, for example, like that's that's just going to create a barrier for them to not continue. Yeah, absolutely. So, so say someone with the low back pain issue during the squat, and then I don't know what type of squat we're performing, where is the load placement, but how would you help work around that pain then? So I would think about, like you said, load placement. So if I place in the type of load, so if I place a barbell on my back and have a narrow grip holding Mm -hmm. it behind my back, typically people push their elbows back towards the the wall behind them. And what that's going to do, it's Mm -hmm. going to push their chest forward. And it's going to create a big arch in their low back. That's typically what you see. 
However, if you take yep. that same barbell and have them have their elbows out in front, their palms um, facing their face, and you place that barbell between their elbows or a front squat, typically what's happening is that's going to allow them to drop their ribs down and use their abs more to stabilize them. And it, it's in a better position or more advantageous position to get their hips underneath them instead of shooting them back as they squat. So just due to the lack of uh, video in this in this conversation, are you referring to like a, a zercher squat then? First, first exactly, one? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Nice, okay. Um, so physiologically, or should I say biomechanically, you're looking to alleviate the problem by teaching people a better way of doing and accomplishing the same basic movement is what it sounds like. Absolutely. It's almost like, can we just be a little creative with our exercise selection and then still maintain, you know, the physiological benefits of those exercises, but without, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is so huge. The exercise selection component. And I know it's creativity is a large word and a big factor and maybe looked down by some people in the fitness industry, but being creative and using biomechanical knowledge along with, you know, physiological knowledge of how the muscles interact is important, which it seems like it's something you take to heart in your exercise program design. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's kind of taking a step back and really looking at things from um, kind of like uh, seeing the whole forest kind of view. And then when you go into training exercise selection, you can kind of really zoom in you know, to each individual tree that you see. So for example, like stepping back a little bit, I think I have a lot of biases when it comes to weightlifting and training because I was in big strength and conditioning program. And a lot of the lifts that we, in training that we learned were like the big three, like, you know, we got a bench, we got a squat, we got a deadlift. And to me, that's really coming mm. from where strength and conditioning started. And it really started with bodybuilding and powerlifting. However, if you think about it, those are sports within and of themselves. So if we take those and we only really care about those kinds of things, well, we're really just teaching people how to um, get better at those sports or objective increases in numbers but it's like okay well if someone's not really into powerlifting or bodybuilding you know maybe they play a multi-directional speed sport or they're just a general population client you know those things you know that helpful if the person is also experiencing some kind of movement issues so kind of stepping back and being a little bit more creative with the type of exercises so they can improve, you know, all those fitness parameters without kind of experiencing, you know, definitely the consequences that come with, you know, those big lifts. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you're saying that these big lifts are inherently dangerous or bad. They're no, worth no. performing. I, definitely not. Definitely yeah. not. Matching the right tool if you will write right implement for the person yeah exactly so exactly what i'm saying I, the, the audio is kind of cutting off so i don't mean to like be 
cutting you off. No, 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 it's okay. I was just doing the same thing. Okay. Um, It's it's the technology. I'll, I'll pipe down. Well, what it seems to me, and it's, I think it's genius, it's, it is that you take everybody, every human body that you're about to train as what it is, which is very idiosyncratic. It's got its inherent strengths, its inherent weaknesses, and you try and match the exercise selection to that person's individual capacities and fitness level and also lifestyle. You know, if how is this best going to serve you? If if you're, as you said, if you're gen population, you know, you're, you're not training for a specific sport. You don't have a specific uh, goal in that direction. You just want to be able to, to navigate your life in a better physical and mental state. And it sounds like your approach to it factors those things in, which is really cool. 100%. That was very, very well spoken. It's just... I think general blank statements like this is good or this is bad is completely useless. Like, you know, I still definitely have people squat, deadlift, all that. It's just kind of saying a little bit more of like, just want people to just think about their, like, there's consequences to everything that you do. For example, like if you change a habit, well, a consequence of that consequence implies both positive and negative is it's going to take time Mm -hmm. away from something else, right? It's going to benefit you in some ways, but also you can't do everything. So something has to give. So same thing with deadlifting. You deadlift really heavy and just want to do heavy load, heavy volume, and kind of like keep moving up your load. That's awesome. That's great. That's, you know, if that's your goal, that's fantastic. But you should know that the consequence of that, and I'm sure anyone who's trained seriously knows these things. It beats up your body a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. that's something that's just inherent to that type of training. That's all basically I'm saying. Yeah, no, o- overuse is... You know what I think thing. The, the best prescription is, and it's, it's what's gotten me where I am more or less injury-free... Um, and I hope I'm not tempting the universe now, is over the years, you know, I mean, I've been training since some my old age, so since 25 and now I'm 60. So I've been <clears throat> kind of riding the wave of every trend, every every new blah, blah that's come along in the 90s, the 2000s, et cetera. And what I kind of did was pulled from each new thing as it came along, what made sense and didn't actually hurt me in any way and hung on to it and just made it part of my repertoire. You know what I mean? If I felt really juicy and, and, and zippy, I'd go in and lift heavy and, and do like some classic bodybuilding stuff. If I didn't, I would navigate towards something else, but I'm going to pass on to everybody who's listening. The most solid piece of advice I ever got in my life when I was younger from a man, my age. And he said, if you ever do a movement, an exercise, and you feel pain in a joint as opposed to the belly of the muscles you're exercising, it's not for you, even if you're doing it to the best to, the best to, that you can and it's actually accurate. It does not suit your mechanics. I love And that. that's kept me, right? That has kept me injury-free. So like when I wandered towards Olympic moves, 
my body freaking hated it, hated it. I'm six foot two. I have a very long spine. You know, I have, I'm a giraffe, you know what I mean? And it just doesn't work for me. So I'm like, okay, so that does not work for me. And I abandoned it and never looked back. So I think if we do our jobs really, really well, we're trying to educate people along a broad repertoire of things. They're so confused to begin with because there seems to be conflicting information out there. Whereas in reality, it all actually works to the degree that you do it well, but you got to pick and choose your poisons. It's, it's like a buffet. Exactly. And you can't be so emotionally invested into one exercise because there's hundreds of exercises. There's, there's so many ways that you can squat, right? And it's like, okay, it's right. not saying that you can't squat. It's just maybe you should do it a different way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, building off the squat, what is your go-to squat stance load position type then for yourself or? Um, so um, my kind of training goal has to do in related to the sport of running. So I do a lot of things in a split stance. So I'm doing a lot of uh, split squat variations. For my clientele, I'm definitely wanting them to do well with the split squat. Um, excuse me, excuse me, a goblet squat before I kind of move on. So the goblet squat mm -hmm. is just holding, you know, a kettlebell or a dumbbell in front of your chest, elbows reaching forward and together. That's going to allow like this kind of canister position between like the ribs and pelvis a little bit. And then I want mm -hmm. that person to be able to maintain the head right over their hips and descend straight down. And as long as there's heel contact, their knees will drift forward a bit over their midfoot. That's what I consider a good squatting position. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we'll move on to other variations. We'll increase, you know, the weight of the kettlebell or dumbbell. Um, I can do goblet squats with people, which is uh, barbell in between the elbows. And that's where I see a lot of people be able to reach greater ranges of motion in the squat, which is really what we're trying to get after. And then we can add um, intensity or um, increases in volume. Yeah. No, it sounds like a really nice progression. Well, you have a love affair with goblet. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's all Asher and I do is goblet squatting. And, and, and the hilarious. The split, well, <laughs> the often split squats. <laughs> Which, by the way, you know, Michael was told by another person, you know, somebody my age should not be able to do. And I'm like, you may want to take a video and send that over. But yeah, you're, you're talking to the king of goblet squats over here. Michael's, Michael's loving his goblets. So it's actually quite funny, right? So I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm um, at the conference in Charlotte, but I'm an adjunct professor at Montclair State University. And yesterday was a squat movement pattern lecture for the, for the course. And tomorrow we're going to the lab to, to demonstrate and do different variations, screening and progressions. But I introduced the lecture by asking, you know, if we went down to the Starbucks on campus, right? And asked, the five people ahead of us online to squat, how many variations would we see? And five is a small sample size, but I think you get the idea. Yes. Five different variations. So again, it's like that. <clears throat> but then if you ask them to sit to a chair, well, what would you see? You know, without any orthopedic limitations, five perfect sit to a chairs. So it's kind of like the verbiage that throws people off as well in society. Yeah, 100%. Right, and even, 
getting people to start there too, like box squats is a great way to teach people how to squat. Yeah. You know what I love about a box squat? I've always said it's like, you know, Dumbo's magic feather. He was afraid of flying, so they gave him a feather. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it wasn't the feather, it was you. So people are like, uh, you know, you'll tell them, all you have to do is sit. The worst thing that can happen is you sit. You sit all day long, so it's okay. You just sit. <laughs> and they go, oh, okay. And then they're doing these beautiful I, – it's the best teaching tool ever. I completely agree with you, Michelle. That's, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Anytime you can throw an analogy, it's like the best learning tool. Yeah, I'm like yeah. – well, I get through life with humor, and I crack – I hope I crack other people up, but I crack me up anyway. And uh, yeah, then, then, you know, eventually you can progress them. You take the box away and I'm like, look, beautiful. There we go. There it is. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. even like using the box more like tactile feedback as an external cue. Yep. Not necessarily on offloading your weight to the box in the future, but. How are you doing? Yeah. Some people yeah. are, you know, proprioceptively challenged. So Michelle, do you predominantly train gen pop or are you wandering towards more sports specific stuff or a blend of both or what's, what's your love affair with this? Little blend of both. So I started as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach at uh, Northeastern University, which is in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, for several years. And then um, I moved to a private gym as the director of education. And I think that transition between, you know, getting, I think teaching collegiate athletes gave me the really good skills of being able to speak in front of a group of people. Um, mm -hmm. and the exercise selection kind of bucket is a lot bigger with them because they're definitely not afraid of movement. They mostly look really good with like their first attempts of doing things. It's just a fantastic mm -hmm. environment to be in with like young adults. It's just, that was amazing. I think the biggest learning curve I've ever had to deal with was transitioning from general population clients, which in general, I would say that they have a lot of fear with certain movements and the weight room yep. and being in gyms. And that's, um, you know, a psychological and coaching component that you, you have to incorporate. Um, and then now I work for my own company called Michelle Bowl and Training. And I Typically, you know, 95% of the people I work with are general population clients. And then in the mm -hmm. summer, I'll get a lot of um, collegiate and professional ice hockey players and uh, professional soccer players. So I, you know, gotcha. I kind of have a, a few months of fun and then, um, you know, it's back um, to working with Gen Pop, which uh, it is fun, but, you know, you got to spice it up a little bit. Well, I always like in, you know, training an elite athlete is like you just said, it's just so much fun because you got this like rapidly focused individual who's like looking at you, like, bring it, challenge me, you know, and that's sort of the, the flip of gem pop. And I want to, you touched on something that, that is really near and dear to our collective heart here. Um, <clears throat> the, the psychological component of, of trying to teach and then transfer. I always want people to take what we're doing in a gym and transfer it to how they move in the course of a day, how you get in and out of the car, how you pick up your groceries or your kids, mm -hmm. you know, like the things that you do, the functional movements that you do in the gym, you should be carrying forth into your life. I used to yell at one kid in the best possible sense 
because he had terrible posture. He would be perfect while he was with me. And I was walking out the door one day. There came the slumped shoulders because he was very tall. And I'm like, stand up! <laughs> it was hilarious. But the fr I agree with you. I think that we, we need to be... We need to be addressing the psychological component of, of training gen pop. It's there, especially if you're getting people who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are now running into health issues. And you may as well have beamed them to Mars. Like being in our world, the world that you and I and, and Michael love, is like an alien planet and they're hideously uncomfortable. And I almost mm -hmm. feel like the first couple of sessions are just establishing that rapport, that trust. Telling him, I get it. This is really, this is hard and this is weird. I get it. I completely get it. One they have to trust you. Exactly. You know, that you're, then, that you're really invested in them. Yes. And how do you find, how do you find that, what's, what's your path to that? We're all different persons, but like, what's your path to getting that, that sense of rapport and trust? Um, getting them to do something successfully as much as possible. Um, so making sure everything's kind of very simple in the beginning and pointing out, you know, when they succeed and, you know, when they do something well. Um, mm -hmm. and then also making sure you're careful with the language that comes out of your mouth in terms of it's not saying, Hey, let's use your good leg or this squat's bad for you. This squat is the only way to do it. That exercise will hurt you. It, things like that people internalize and they probably are entering in with a lot of those things already internalized. Like the, the gym is, I'm not going to belong or, you know, I'm going to hurt my knees if I do lunges things like that. So kind of trying to really be careful of how you word things and work around things is, is a huge example. Also the difference between, you know, people who have had some sort of training history early on in their life or sport history, they really understand their body a lot more, like how to move it well. But a lot of the people that I work with never really had that early training or sports experience they have no relationship with their body. So even just, you know, feeling that their quad muscles are working is like a very foreign concept to them. Um, so, you know, just starting as slow as possible and getting them to notice things is also key. You know, something I, I, I was sitting here, like jumping up and down. Yes, yes, yes. To everything you said, like you were, we're athletes, right? And, I love what you said. Once an athlete, always an athlete. I, I tell people who are deconditioned in their forties, if you ever play college ball or whatever, you're in there. We just got to wake it up. But yes, for those that didn't have that experience, the three of us sitting here talking live so intimately within the, this body. You know what I'm saying? We know mm -hmm. it's good days. It's bad days. We can do what it doesn't like to do all of the, all of those things. So for us, I think it's critical as professionals to do what you do and slow down mm -hmm. and remember what it's like for be empathetic to what it's like for somebody who has never had those physical and psychological sensations or experiences from human movement. Yeah. And I agree exactly. with you. The, 
the avoidance of negative verbiage is tricky. You really have to get good at it because you don't realize you're saying it. Um, as a clinician, it was beaten into me. Like there's no such thing as a good leg. It's the alternate leg. Um, but yeah, you know, to really have a, a tremendous amount of empathy for what somebody who's never experienced this before is going through and how I love the fact that you build in success from the get-go. I think that's critical as well. And that you point it out because sometimes these folks don't even recognize you just did it. You know, you should be jumping up and down. You did it. You actually brought it off. That's awesome. And yes. kind of leave everybody with a win. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, being, them even being like, oh, I actually did that well. Like, they'll, they'll feel successful leaving and they're more likely to come back with that as well. Exactly. It's huge buy-in right there. Yep, yep, yep. And it, it's almost like I feel the public is – discouraged right they'll come to someone like you who's a professional and you know your industry and if they've trained somewhere else prior speaking to general population with a a so-so personal trainer who just you know passed an exam one morning and they're now a trainer well they lost hope and it is that negative environment they're placed in so it's a big undertaking right training training somebody new yeah it definitely is um and like you said it's the relationship is definitely key there because the idea is that you want them to keep coming back and be able to sustain what they're doing i think one of the biggest mistakes people make too soon besides you know the psychological components the the coaching tactics the relationship is you know, if I have an hour and someone comes in who never trained before, it's really hard to fill that hour. It's almost probably maybe an inappropriate time span because you want to make sure people don't wake up the next day and get this crazy physical sensation. Um, we call that mm -hmm. soreness. <laughs> but if if they wake up, <laughs> we if they wake up and they feel that way because they've never felt that before. Some people like us love that feeling, right? Yes, we chase it. We chase it. Exactly. So like you really have to be careful in those situations as well. I typically actually just start off with either 30 or 45 minute sessions if someone's never trained before because mm -hmm. I don't want to get into that, the whole of um, – of them basically not being able to really walk the next day because I don't think that carries like a forward progression very well. Not at all. Absolutely. No, I know. And you know, something that, that is, alludes back to what I was saying when, you know, to them, we are the weird tribe. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know, we like this stuff and what on earth is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, um, like when you tell people, uh, you know, you would get this. If I walk past him, like I tried my legs yesterday, I don't feel a flipping thing. You'd be like, uh, you know, <laughs> bummer. Yeah, and yeah, they'd be exactly. like, well, that's good, right? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's not good. It means I, I didn't do it right. You know, yeah, no, exactly. that's a complete foul. You know, yeah. spots for you. we are estranged. We are, we are, but you know, we, we keep the world turning. So exactly. moving along, you're, not you're besides ourselves, you know? Exactly. You know, it's, it's actually, I didn't realize 
we were kind of, when I was young, I was doing all these things instinctively. Like almost everybody hates doing legs. I love doing legs. And it's mm -hmm. because it's as difficult as it is. And I always took that win. I did something that was really hard and I don't always want to do it on a winter morning, but then like you leave and you're in such a buzzy state that, you know, whatever else the day carries, you, you started on a win. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's also part of the transference that I'm talking about. Like not just the physical, the biomechanical shift out into the world, but like every single time you do this for you, you should feel really freaking good about it. You should feel really, really capable and on top of your game and just go take that win out into whatever other challenges are going to, you know, run up through the course of the day, take it into your business meetings, take it into whatever, you know, if you could do this, you can do that is, is, is my stance. Yeah, definitely. And I think verbalizing that is also important because some people aren't really good at, you know, drawing out these, you know, conclusions or, or connecting their capabilities in the gym with other things that they do in life. But I think when people start to take weight training seriously and fitness training seriously it actually spills out to the rest of their lives because they're like okay well you know, I have this training session with Michelle Monday morning you know if I go out and get drunk on Sunday that training session is going to be really rough or if you know if I don't get enough sleep on Sunday night or Saturday night so I think you know, the more they take seriously and see their improvements in the gym, the more likely they're to make positive changes elsewhere. I think that is absolutely true. Because look, let's face it, we're all human. Hasn't it pulled you up short on a Saturday night or me? I have absolutely said, no, 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 no. I got to, you know, it would be fun, but no, you know, you're right. It absolutely kind of, it gives a structure to everything else you're doing unconsciously yeah, if no other way i agree with you Definitely. it does guide you to the better decisions ultimately absolutely and since michael and i have a serious serious pastry slash cake slash bakery issue going on here it, <laughs> maybe some whole foods involved again <laughs> no there was a tower of desserts michelle that disappeared into us the other day so there's no other way to describe it i you know i'm six foot two with really long arms and it was up to my chin so to Say that, yes, you know, we look at these things and we start calculating, okay. Or if we go out and we have dinner, we have a bottle of wine. It's like, okay, for real, <laughs> we're going to do X, Y, and Z to make up for this. Yeah. Um, well, also too, it's kind of funny because people say like, oh, you know, like, you know, I didn't realize that you ate dessert. And I was like, yeah, like sometimes, but it's just like, I actually need the calories because, you know, I just ran 13 miles. It's like, well, I exactly, can yeah. I can't really eat that amount of calories from, you know, cabbage. Like, what do you want me to do? You know? And it's like, how many yeah. chicken breasts can you eat? <laughs> exactly. No. And, and you know something that's, that's actually touches on something I didn't even think about before. How many times have you said to somebody, cause they always assume, and I'm sure you've heard it too, Michelle. Oh, you must watch every bite you eat. I'm like, uh, that'd be no, Thank God, no. I eat dessert. I've been known to have a beer. I, yeah, no. Uh, we work on the 80-20 principle. 80% 80 of the time, I am a good boy. Literally. Mm -hmm. Watch the diet, the whole nine yards. But I'm half Irish. The Irish have a great expression. You're going to be dead long enough. So the other 20%, if I'm a, I'm a calorie snob, Michelle. If, if it's well made and I'm in my 20%, I feel like being naughty, I'm going to eat it. I am absolutely going to eat it. But if it's kind of crappy, no, not so much. But whatever your 20% is... 
I think you should guilt-free roll around in it and enjoy it, whatever that is. And then because the bulk of the time you're really towing the line and doing what you need to do and eating properly, it's not going to show. Our weight is all really static. You know what I mean? We don't float up and down. I'm sure you don't float up and down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty consistent. It's been pretty consistent yeah. since, you know, college, high school. <laughs> yeah, you know. Just wanted to get a little bit into, you mentioned running. And how, how big of a factor is that? I know I see on your Instagram you're preparing for the Boston Marathon. Yeah, congrats with that. Uh, Thank you. Very how long much. has it been a goal of yours and how long have you been running? That's a great question. So I was very, you know, I would say I was a pretty casual running in college, more so for enjoyment than, you know, uh, actual goal or pursuit. So I played um, three sports in college and I would always go out with like the cross country team. I had a few players on my, the soccer team, which I played in college all four years um they would take me out running with them all the time and where I went to school has pretty much like one of the biggest trail systems in the country like in the woods and I loved trail running and then when I went to grad school I kind of got away from it because you know I went to grad school for strength and conditioning so like a lot of it was just weight room training Um, Mm -hmm. and you know I would I was pretty much like a casual running I kept up on it but never really you know, pushed the boundaries of what I thought I was capable of doing. And then one of my friends got me to run. I don't know how she got me to run it, but a a half marathon last year. And Mm -hmm. I just loved training. And then I loved when you got to the competition, like seeing what you were capable of doing. It's it's just like, it's almost self-challenge. Like I'm not trying to win the race, you know, I'm not at that level. I'm just trying to see like what I can do. And then from that point on, I kind of got pretty obsessed in like loving trail running. So I go to a lot of reservations around here, running through the woods. It's completely different than like pavement running or road running. Um, There's a lot more like variability, movement, um, obstacles along the way. And I really want to, push that and get into that a little bit more. Like I want to do a bunch of trail run runs this um, summer. The Boston marathon was kind of an opportunity that was presented to me that I just feel like it's one of those opportunities that you just can't turn down. Like in, to me, it would be like silly to turn down because the Boston marathon is, is more than just like a run. It's a whole experience. It's like a lifetime experience because you're going to run 26 miles with hundreds of thousands of people along the way. You see the celebration into the city. It's to me, that is just something that um, you just can't turn down. So for me, you know, I'm not trying to set any records with my marathon time. I want to enjoy the experience. I'm going to stop to say hi to the people who've been supporting me along the way you know, I'm going to laugh at, you know, all the fraternities we're going to run by. And it's just, it's just going to be. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I know. I've, I've heard so many stories about people like prompting people to like, you know, chug a beer along the way and stuff like that. So, I'm <laughs> But definitely my training overall has changed less heavy loading. 
um, more things that support like my running training. So, you know, stuff in the weight room and my fitness have really kind of had to be altered through all that like running volume. Um, but it's been such a great experience. What a freaking accomplishment. I mean, I have to tell you, I could get on to this day a bike and I will cycle and I'm not exaggerating 30, 40 miles in the course of a day at the, at the Jersey shore or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, no worries. No, no bother. Big quads, big glutes. Good to go. I run like a Clydesdale. <laughs> I have tried in my twenties, my thirties, my forties. This past summer, most recently. Oh my God. It was, <laughs> we, we were toying with the idea of a Spartan and everything was going swimmingly. Everything, everything, everything. Everything was great. And then Mike takes me out to do road work. He's like, on, got on, got on. God, and I'm like, it was horrifying. And I'm like, paved trail too. Oh yeah, no, like really, this it was pretty. It was there was lampposts as well. It, yeah, he, he tried. He tried. He did. You know, I, the, the 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 sneakers, the whole bit. Now he's like, wow, you really stink. And I'm like, <laughs> so I admire anybody who can just make a decision to do what you're doing and make it work. My body is just like. Uh, no, no, that's not what we do. No, sorry. Well, good thing it rained on the day of the Spartan, so we actually got out of it. Yes, yes. No, the, the universe is not about me. It makes it makes perfect sense. You know, people are built like structurally um, very different, and it it biases them towards being good at things. So, like you know, from all that you've kind of said, you seem like you know a, a strong dude, and that's you're probably good at lifting weights because of like your structure. Oh, yeah. but we probably have the polar opposite structure where I'm like very narrow. And like, anytime you see a cross country runner, like what are they? They're very like narrow. They have narrow hips equal to like narrow shoulders. And that creates yep. what we talked about in their thorax or core, like a pumping system through that. Mm-hmm. And people who are weightlifters tend to have wide shoulders, wide hips, and like a, uh, like the width is a little bit wider. So instead of vertically tall, they're they're a little bit wider side to side. And that allows you to create like a lot of compression in your system to move external load. So it's like, yeah, like someone like built like that is never going to be like a long distance runner, no matter like how much, you know, they train. It's just, it's just going to be more difficult for them. You just literally painted a picture of what I look like and what I do and, and, and what the opposite of that is. It was beautifully said. I had a buddy years ago who was, his stride was so efficient. He would lope and 15 feet would disappear, but he was a reed. Yes. Narrow hips, narrow shoulders, Mm -hmm. everything you just said. And I'm like, well, I'll see you when you get back because (laughs) that's not a shot of keeping up with you. Yeah. Yeah. the key word from that last sentence you said, I think was compression, right? You have the compression and expansion um, ideology. Could you a little, could you tap into that a little bit, please? Good question. Yeah. So this is, this is really, um, I, you know, I'm not crazy about speaking for other people, but this is a lot of the stuff that I've learned from and that I highly suggest people to learn from as well. Um, the guy named Bill Hartman, he's in Indiana and he, from all of his knowledge and experience, he's kind of created and teaches a model of, you know, how to look at the human body. And what I've kind of taken from that, and who knows how, you know, accurate what I'm about to say, but it's just, you know, if, if you just stop right here and take an inhale, you feel your body kind of open up and expand. 
And if you take an exhale, you feel the opposite. You feel constriction. Your body starts to compress. Things start to get closer together. So the model is based on like our ability is just how we expand, how we compress, and our system's kind of built for that. So when we lift heavy weights, well, to put something overhead, my body has to create compression to be able to lift, you know, that external weight over my head. And that compression is coming from internal forces. And so to move, you actually need expansive qualities. Like that's how movement occur, more joint ranges of motion. Um, and so it's kind of looking at, you know, that through like a movement lens, if you will. Honestly, you, you make something so complex, so easily understood that that is just exactly how it works. And, you know, interestingly enough, listening to you, um, it explains my diaphragm. I have ridiculous diaphragmatic strength because of, of that intra-abdominal pressure that I use whenever I'm lifting heavy. I mean, I take a breath in the room. It's like, that's it. He got all the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that it, it kind of connects to our structure. More of us, excuse me, uh, how we're like our bony structure kind of is going to dictate or bias us towards a certain direction, um, especially when it comes to breathing and like um, the state of inhalation or exhalation. Like you can actually be better at one of those than the other. Um, and that's kind of like his biomechanical model. So if you guys want to check him out, just look up his like YouTube page. His, um, you know, for your listeners, um, his name again is Bill Hartman. I absolutely will, because yeah. that's fascinating. I never thought of, of being better at inha inhalation or exhalation, but no, I'm definitely going to check him out because it, it sounds like it would be like a pr practical information that you can do something with, and I love that. Yeah, thank you for yeah. sharing. Yeah, it goes back to all that stuff we talked about in the beginning, you know, just like using that information to like really dictate, you know, your exercise selection for people. It can be pretty helpful to get people to move better, you know. Absolutely. So in terms of other, you've been, we've, we've collectively been really cool about doing a, somewhat of a dive into your history. Do you, at this point, do you have other kind of, if you will, hidden areas of expertise, other side certifications, if you will, that you have gotten into that you're weaving into what you're doing in the, in the main sense of, of your work now? Um, you cut off a little bit. Question. You cut off a little Do bit. Do you have any, like, sorry. Okay. In other words, using me as an example, I, I come to this career, this is my fourth and final, <laughs> my final one. Um, but I've integrated lots of things from my prior careers and they're very diverse, you know, telecommunications, arts, yada, yada, yada. So, but I've, I've known over time that I'm using one way or the other skill sets that I've picked up along the way from these other very divergent careers. So do you feel like you're integrating anything outside of almost health and fitness into the work that you're doing at this point? Because as we hit a certain point in life, we start to get really sophisticated at synthesizing different parts of ourselves into our work now. So do you feel any 
influences outside of health and fitness per se that you weave into your work that is effective? That makes perfect sense. Um, I think through fitness, I've gotten better at the skill of presenting and talking in front of people. And so Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, trying to do more of that. Um, I have gotten really interested in putting on events, um, marketing for events, you know, doing everything that it takes to put it together. Um, I even created my own health and performance seminar kind of weekend and you know it gets CEUs from um, other institutions who you know people can use to go to to you know get reinstated in their certifications and licenses and things like that uh, it's called the Boston Health and Performance Sun- Summit and it's June 10th and 11th this year and I bring together people who I think, are the best at what they do and offer so much information. And not only that, but I think the value is one step further where it's like, okay, provide people actionable steps and how to use that information. Because I think that falls in line with my academic history and kind of seeing Mm -hmm. the mistakes people sometimes make when it comes to learning and teaching. And then how can I say, I'm going to create a really good seminar because a lot of people can do that. You just have to get a bunch of people to speak, but it's okay. Taking that step further, how can I teach people to, um, you know, collect information, but filter it in regards to what's going to be useful to you in your context. And I've also Mm. created a course called um, the strategy course group classroom, which I'm uh, running a group of people through right now to go through that exact process, like collect and organize all of your information experiences into something that can help you make decisions easier, can be more useful and more efficient for your process. So I think teaching, I would probably say, is also bleeding over into other things. Um, Yes, because, you know, it is all about building a future and seeing, you know, what's going to be sustainable as a profession over time. And that that definitely needs to evolve over time. Yeah, there's quite a bit of untapped educational availability in terms of providing different resources and you providing a seminar and a certification course, right? I mean, that's, that's huge. And I feel like we're at some kind of a, in a good way, in a great way, actually, tipping point. Um, and Michael and I talk about this a lot. You know, his degree is exercise physiology and I'm an occupational therapist. I work obviously really closely with physical therapists and the whole medical, the health side of things. Um, but we've been saying for this whole last year, we, we, those of you guys who are, who are in health and fitness and those of us that are on the more clinical side of things, there's an application and a relationship that needs to be developed that will both help people who are recovering from some sort of acute and or chronic condition. Um, but also just kind of help the entire gen pop to get into a better state, to kind of flip the American paradigm right now where it's really the numbers are not good. But I feel the tipping point I'm referring to is that quote unquote non-clinicians and exercise folks are starting to see that it's time to do something together. 
that there there's there's a a, a meeting point that we're all I think trying to get to. What's your feeling on that? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I also think it's like, what can you do for the next generation coming after you? And I do think it's more of like the integration as well. But I view it as, you know, people who who are older kind of always complain about younger generation and all this and that. They have it so easy. Well, it's like, yeah, like we're a part of that. And we should kind of take pride in that. Like we're using our experiences and wisdom and we should create something that helps them, right? Make things easier to not have to make the same mistakes that we made or to help them learn something that we didn't know at their age. And that's how like the, the industry progresses over time. And that's kind of how I do it. Yeah. It's like a legacy. What's your legacy? What's yeah. your professional legacy? I should say. Yeah. It makes you exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think about that a lot as well. You know, I'm at the age where you would be thinking about it a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, it just starts with those small day-to-day changes that you help, help those, ne- those nearest you. Yeah. And there's yeah. a great payback to that too, because, um, when I decided to do this, it was because I wanted to do work for the remainder of my life that at the end of the day, and they're not always easy days, you, you still knew that like there was a handful of people who were really in better shape because you were on the planet. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's, it's a very self-fulfilling, positive career that we're all involved in, in our own way. Exactly. And it's so interesting because I think the, just how younger adults view what a career or a profession needs to be is evolving where it's like especially as trainers there's really only a couple career paths now I feel like especially where it's like entrepreneurship you can really mm-hmm. do anything and supplement your job or your past passion with something else so it's a very exciting time I think I agree 100 percent. agree with you on that too well, this has been a ball. Yeah. And no, really. And so, 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 so informative. Perfect. Good. Is yeah, there, no, um, been... What's yeah. the best way for anybody to get in touch with you for your seminars and for any, anything else to, what's your, what's the best contact info for you? Oh, and so I post, most of my stuff, most of my content on Instagram, which is at uh, dr.michelleboland. Um, my email is m-b-o-l-a-n-d at michelleboland-training.com. That's also my website, michelleboland-training.com. So feel free to reach out with any questions. That's great. Awesome. That's great. I hope you get an avalanche because you are two things, a wealth of information and a wealth of positivity. And that's, that's, that's awesome. Talk to come across. Appreciate it.